Reconstructionist Radio presents The War Room, where we discuss tactics for strategic Christian living. Mighty Lord, extend your kingdom, be the truth with Welcome to the War Room. This is Bill Evans. I'm in the home of Pastor Brian Abshire at Covenant Reformed Presbyterian Church in Evansville, Indiana. It was a writer for Cosedon. Brian has been on the War Room, and we welcome him back. Thanks, Bill. Great to be with you. We're in his home. He just given me a manuscript for an unpublished book. Brian's a co-author of, of a book with Peter Hammond, Character Assassins, which, as you if you've been following the recent firebombing going back and forth on the topic of our Lone Ranger Christians, Facebook prophets, I'm not going to give Brian the answers I'm looking for. He's been in the ministry now for 40 years, was a contemporary of Rush Dooney and Bonson and North and all the, 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 the men you know and love. And he's been quietly uh, and unpretentiously laboring away, he's doing the work of pastor and uh, a shepherd of God's people. And um, But he's a friend, and he's a good writer, and he's pithy, and he's funny, and he serves me bourbon. And so we like to visit with Brian from time to time just to check in on him, to have him weigh in on some of the issues of the day, or for that matter, Brian, anything else that's on your mind. Just tell us what you have to say about uh, church government in, in polity and practice and some of the abuses, the role of elder, and the limitations of his office. Uh, well, let, me, let me give you a couple of things here. A lot of the things, situations that you were talking about earlier, I really have no knowledge of. And that's kind of the nice thing about being in, as you call it, the gulag down here in southern Indiana. I don't have to get involved in those kinds of things anymore. People don't bother me with that, and I don't have to bother them. Instead, I can get on with what I think is the real kingdom work, which is loving people and ministering to them and helping them raise their kids and love their wives and respect their husbands and, and minister to their neighbors and their co-workers. And to me, that's the real work of the church, and that's the way that in the long term we transform the culture from the bottom up. So I really can't address those things. What I can do, though, is perhaps identify some of the reasons why Christians keep having these kinds of problems, and that's really the purpose of this particular book. Now, I'm not trying to hawk that particular book. It's been sitting on my hard drive. I think I looked at it uh, before I printed off a copy since 2003, and the reason why is I wrote it, and I realized I don't think anyone wants to read this. Why do they want to read it? Well, because it's a very personal book. It is me asking questions that nobody in the Christian university that I went to or the four evangelical seminaries I attended ever wanted to ask. They took certain things for granted. They, they started with their presuppositions, but nobody did the work that Van Til told us to do and looked at the presuppositions to see if they were right. And I wanted to ask, what is the nature of the church? Where does the church get authority from? How do you, uh, what, what role is an elder supposed to have? It was very personal because, as I shared in my testimony last time you were here, I became a Christian in 1973. 
I became a Christian because somebody shared the gospel with me. It was a it was a an uh, unofficial member of a parachurch organization. For the next five years, when I was in the military, I was never a member of a church. I, I wasn't even baptized for the first four years of that. I didn't even know that baptism was something that was necessary. Uh, but in that time, I studied my Bible, I memorized Scripture, I prayed, I evangelized people. Uh, they made professions of faith in Christ. I discipled them using the tools that I had available at that particular time. I did my own Bible studies. I started gathering information. And all of these things I did without ever being a member of a local congregation because, well, you were in the military. In your military, you don't often have a local congregation. The Correct. base chapel is, you know, is, I always thought the base chapel was a great place to go evangelizing. You know, exactly. It was, a great, it was a great fishing hole. But it wasn't a place that you'd go to actually learn anything. And so as a consequence, I was shocked when 15 or 20 years later, after I've been through college and seminary and graduate school and been ordained as a minister and, you know, worked in various things, when I was told that unless you were a member of a local congregation, you are not a Christian. You cannot be saved apart from the church. At and the I, very least, you're disobedient. Well, yeah, but, but, it's, but it's not just the disobedient, but you're not saved. And this is not held by some weird, strange, bizarre, cultic, authoritarian, not job out there, because you, know, you always find those in Christianity. But this is basically, they were, this, was a, this was said to be the dominant view of our fellowship, of our presbytery, of our denomination, that you cannot be saved outside of the church. And it made me realize, fundamentally, is that that Christians, especially Reformed ones, often commit the fallacy of equivocation. Now that fallacy means you take one word that has multiple meanings. And what you do, the fallacy is, is that you go from one meaning to another meaning without letting people know that you're changing the meaning. So you're making something mean something that it doesn't really. For example, the word church. The word church is a horrible word and probably should be abandoned. Now, I say that not because the concept of the church is bad, but because the church itself is not good. Church, there's a couple of different uh, etymologies of where the word comes from. It, uh, you may know it from uh, Captain Kirk from Star Trek, right? I know Kirkos, yeah, which and, was the house of the Lord. Yeah, house of the Lord. That's, that, is, uh, that is one particular th uh, thing. Another, the problem is, is that we don't find that usage very often until no. much later on. Uh, some people think it comes from the Greek word kirke, which means circle. And the reason why it would be related to the church is because um, the early churches were built in circles, and circles were the recognized form of pagan religion. So in other words, when pagans had their religious places, they tend to build their things in circles. Mm -hmm. That's kind of, you know, their altars and sacrifice and that kind of stuff. And so... Basically, the idea then is that somehow or another, the word kirk came into, or church came into, came mm -hmm. into English, mm -hmm. became the dominant word. The closest that we know, if it does come from the word kuriakos, which means house of the Lord, that word is never actually used in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. The word in the New Testament is ecclesia, right. which means the assembly, mm -hmm. the called out ones. This is a fundamental distinction that has been lost. Because what happens is that the assembly is all of God's people. And it doesn't really refer to necessarily to a local congregation. And there's a, there's a real big thing. I can't remember if we talked about this last time or not. We probably did. I, I really became aware of this thought in reading Stephen Perks on, the, uh, the, um, on, on 
church on, on, on ecclesiology on some of his manuscripts where he brings up the fact that uh, um, the fact that Tyndale translated Ecclesia church is sort of a curious thing mm. uh, gathering uh, congregation that you know in in, um, in Greek usage it referred to basically the movers and the shakers the 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 council the 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 voting members you know within a the Greek polis uh, the ecclesia these are the people I, I use the called out ones you know everybody thinks of that right. in terms of the soteriology I think it, it in terms of the actual usage of the word I think it it, it more suits the image of a volunteer fire brigade or the militia mm. when the call is you know so that's I've, I've shared that many times I think that's a more active dynamic word picture than uh, you know the elect sitting in their stiff back chairs in a Sunday service, the frozen chosen, the called out ones, to me, I think of more of a dynamic uh, image of the the ones who are responding to the alarm, or whether it be to danger, fire, or, 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 or a marauder. And and in that respect, the the, the body of Christ, we, we respond to the master, the Holy Spirit's uh, work of regeneration. But then we, uh, as we did in our song today, called to be sent, then we respond, we're enlisted into the king's army for active duty. Well, I think that's the keynote right there, Bill, because the word, as Rashtuni points out in his works, the word... Ecclesia translates the Hebrew word kahal. The word kahal means the assembly. It is all the people of God. They are called out, and, and there's some, you've got to be careful about using the phrase called Ecclesia literally means to be called out, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's what the word means. But it does mean the people of God. And the people of God called out from the world, the people of God as, as a body. Now here's the question, one of the questions that I wanted to investigate, and nobody could give me an answer, and maybe I'm just a terrible researcher, that's always part of it, but where do we get this idea that here's the all of the people of God, who has the right to establish a local congregation? Now, again, I, we could spend hours and hours and hours, and if you ever get around to reading, having someone read the chapters, you'll hear my arguments in full if you do that. But my question is, is that who, what gives someone the right to be called a church? Now, if you're an Episcopalian or an Anglican, basically your right to be called a church comes from Henry VIII. And the Archbishop of Canterbury basically says, the church is Episcopal in nature, the Bishop of Rome is only, the Pope is just the Bishop of Rome, he's the first among equals maybe, but he has no more authority than we do, and so, and Henry VIII is the head of the church, or the, the sovereign of England is the head of the church, and so therefore we have our right to be as a church, we determine what a church is going to be. I think most Americans would probably say we reject that idea, in fact, I think we fought a war against the British and there's a book called Scepter and Mitre, which is basically the theological reasons for Americans rebelling, and that was the, the fact that the British were going to impose episcopacy upon the, 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 the colonies, and that was as much as anything else a reason for why the average American took up arms against the British government, or the English government, I should say. So we reject episcopacy. And then uh, now we have the, you know, like the Anabaptist mood, and like most people today, outside of you know, certain French groups, most people say, well, we don't want to trace back to the Anabaptists. They were kind of the left-wing radical, forgive me for saying this if you find your, but kind of nutjobs. I mean, Luther, Calvin, all the reformers were pretty 
adamantly against the Anabaptists. And even modern-day Baptists, they trace their history to 17th century English Baptists, not to, you know, 16th century or, you know, uh, European. So we don't want to go on that particular route. And now we've got the Reformers, okay, and we've got the Lutherans. These are the, two, you know, the Reformed Church and the Lutheran Church. Well, the Lutherans got their right to establish a church again from their princes. And that's called, the technical term for that is Erastianism. Basically, the government determines what the religion is going to be and determines what church is going to be the state-supported church. And kind of Presbyterianism, the same thing in Scotland and in Geneva. I mean, the city fathers in Geneva called Calvin in and said, okay, we've gotten rid of the Roman Catholics, now you build us a new church that we like. And he basically established the Reformed Church, which are basically Presbyterian, even though Continental Reformed people don't call themselves Presbyterian. We're We're the same polity. We believe in the same things with slightly different terms and procedures. Well, most American Christians, again, are going to say, I don't want this state. I'm not an Anglican. I'm not a Lutheran. I'm not a, even if I'm a Presbyterian, you know, I don't want the, I don't get my authority to be from the state. The Presbytery has the right to establish it. Well, here's the problem. American uh, Presbyterians were in America for about 150 years before the first Presbytery was ever established. They met, they worshiped. I'm presumingly they baptized babies, they, they uh, you know, they, they took communion, and it was only until Francis McKimmy came in the latter part of the 18th century, early 19th century, that the first American presbytery was established. So all those Scottish and uh, northern, you know, northern Irish, uh, Scots-Irish uh, settlers for 150 years had been living in America, and uh, they didn't have a presbytery. What gave them the right to meet? And that's a kind of an important thing. Because if you're reformed, and let's look at our brother down the street there, okay, this is this is this is first, you know, mainstream American evangelical church, right? They're congregational in government, they're not they may or may not belong to a denomination. It's probably maybe even be a mega church. What gives them the right to call themselves a church? Would, do we deny that they're a church? We may think their theology is bad. We may think that their polity is sometimes not as good as it could be. But what gives them the right to be a church? It didn't come from Rome, right? Because their, their ministers, you know, they weren't baptized and uh, they weren't ordained by Rome. It didn't come from the state. They probably weren't ordained by anybody in terms of a laying on hands, were they? Um, very possibly today. Very possibly, that's yeah. That is a very good possibility. A husband and wife decided to you know started a Bible study or a collegiate ministry, and it just grew. And but but the point is is that is it a church or not? Is it a valid church? Well, I think the reason why we ask that question is because we're using the word church to begin with. If we say if let's say we didn't have the word church to use, it wasn't in our vocabulary. We would say, what do they got down there? Well, it's obviously not a coffee house. It's not a, a little jiffy lube. It must be an assembly of Christians. It is a, yes, that's it. It's a religious congregation. Mm-hmm. It's people gathering to do whatever it is they do, sing Jesus songs, read the Bible, play with snakes, dance in the hall, in the street, in the, in the aisles or whatever they're doing down there. But we, the only reason why we ask is, what gives them the right to be a church is because we have the word church. And that word church conjures up certain... I tell people, do a word... Asso- I did this in the last War Room podcast. Do a word association picture with the word church. You say sandwich. 
or you say dog, you're gonna, I'm gonna picture a pit bull. Why? Because, or picture a sandwich, you know, turkey sub. Picture church, the first thing you see is a building. You can't help it. And that's part of the reason why this is problematic is because the word carries that kind of baggage with it. When I think, when you think of church, you don't think of a dynamic strike team of of on fire Christians uh, armed with the word and sharpened and trained up and equipped to go out and win souls and and charge the gates of hell. You think of a maybe a old country church or a large mega church or a cathedral or you know, the moder- you know the church closest to your home that you pass every day to work. That's the reason why there's an issue. That's the reason why we asked the question. Well, it's, it's, it's even more complicated than that, though, Bill, because we have the New Testament evidence. There are things called the Ecclesia of Ephesus, of mm-hmm. Philadelphia, yeah. of Smyrna, of Laodicea, of, you know, all these kinds of things. There are places that are called not just the universal assembly of people in every place, but there are, in this particular community, here's a, these are my people in this community. Specific congregation. And, and these congregations have elders. We know that. They have deacons. They have duties, responsibilities. They, are, they have the, the kinds of things you talk about. Paul gives us specific instructions in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 14 about how your worship service is to be organized and what you're supposed to be doing. And he gives, the, and throughout all of his letters, he gives descriptions of the behavior of those people who belong to this community of people. But what gives anyone the right to establish that local congregation? If you're a Roman Catholic... You say, well, the church, we do, the institution does. If you're Anglican, if you're uh, Presbyterian or Lutheran, your background is the state gave you the right to establish your churches. Well, we don't acknowledge that anymore. Uh, So if that authority came from the state and it was an illegitimate authority, then where is our authority today for doing it? And again, this goes back to this question. If you are not a member of a local congregation, you cannot be saved. It's not just, it's not healthy or it's not bad for your soul. There is no salvation apart from the church. Well, they often tout the, the quote from Calvin, if, if, if uh, the church is not your mother, then God is not your father. And I have a feeling that it does, it didn't, he didn't think it meant what people are using it to mean yeah, today. I think so as well. And that's part of the problem. And so most people would say, well, what gives a church legitimacy, what gives a local congregation its theological credibility and legitimacy is the fact that it's established by an approved agent. For example, in the New Testament, we have the Apostle Paul and Barnabas and others, and he goes around to various places, preaches the gospel. With the grace of God, people respond to the gospel. He organizes them into a church. He gives instructions to Timothy, you know, to, to appoint elders in every place, and we could look at that, and that's really interesting, but, too. But presumably, there were many of them that were not established with apostolic input. Well, that's the question that nobody seems to want to ask. That's the thing that, sadly, and now again, it could be I'm a lousy researcher, and that's very possible, but I never could find it in my reading when I wanted to ask this fundamental question, and I came across the situation in the book of Acts of the Church of Antioch. And the Church of Antioch is, I think, the most compelling piece of evidence that's ignored by most Christians when they discuss this issue. Because Antioch was not established by an apostle or an an apostolic delegate. Basically, what happened is that after uh, the Pentecost, people stayed in Jerusalem. 
they received the apostles' teaching, and they were visitors. They came from all over the Roman Empire. A bunch of them had come from Antioch. They stayed there for quite some time. They went back to Antioch and shared the gospel with their Greek neighbors. They organized themselves into a church. When Jerusalem heard about it, now again, you've got to think this is like 10 or 15 years down the road. Jerusalem hears about it. They send Paul and Barnabas to Antioch to go ahead and check out the situation. Not to establish the church there, but to investigate it. This is the same church that later on ordains Paul and Barnabas to be missionaries into Asia Minor in Greece. Think about this. The, the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem recognized Antioch as being a true church of Jesus Christ, even though it wasn't established by an apostle or an apostolic delegate. They didn't even know about the church, and that's why they had to send somebody there. So it's not like, oh, they can say, well, at Pentecost, you know, we, these guys became Christians, and we sent them back and told them to start a church. And No, they didn't do that. There's no indication of that. Instead, basically, we have something that's going on here that's kind of unprecedented. And so basically what that means, and, and I think Bannerman says this. He's a 19th century uh, theologian, and he wrote the definitive book on, on uh, ecclesiology, uh, uh, you know, ecclesiology. And basically what he said is that the New Testament concept of the local congregation is based upon the Jewish concept of the synagogue. And basically what he says is that Christians have the right because they're called out from God that we're a nation of priests and kings. We have the right to form local congregations. Where Jesus said, where two or three among you, where you know, where two or more gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of you. There's a spiritual reality there. There's a significant thing. Nobody ordained the elders in the church at Antioch. There didn't take, you know, a, a an ecclesiastical commission from the you know first Presbyterian Church of Jerusalem to go up there and lay hands on the elders there and ordain them and make them an authentic, legitimate church. Instead, it seems as they laid hands on Paul and Barnabas. It seems they Jerusalem recognized that this is a church with all the gifts and graces and duties and responsibilities of a real biblical church. You know, I, I know a case of, um, well, several cases, but one noteworthy because I was involved with it back in the uh, 80s. There was a campus ministry at the University of Missouri that was started by a fellow from New York City, a Bible study. It, it became very, very successful. The guy's dad was a um, um, real estate tycoon who left his son a lot of money, thinking that his son would follow in his steps in terms of developing in, you know, commercial real estate and all that. And instead, what he did, they bought two, three hundred acres of ground. But this time, this Bible study had grown into. They were meeting on Sundays. They were eight. In Ecclesia, they were an assembly. They called themselves Columbia Christian Fellowship. Um, I don't know who ordained any of them, but they had a plurality of those. They had about eight or nine guys that were sort of the more mature ones in the congr- uh, in the fellowship. They were all married. Some of them were Armenians. Some of them were Calvinists. Some of them were Pado. Some of them were Credo. And but these were this was sort of the council. These were the guys that had known each other were in it, had been in it for the long haul. They ended up taking the land and parceling it out, selling it off in auction to the families that belonged to the fellowship. (laughs) They had a couple of these guys were good contractors. They built 
fantastic, beautiful homes, and they named the streets, you know, biblical names and all that, and set up, in effect, what was sort of like a Christian social order. It was that portion of town was, uh, was it was like for several square miles, the, you know, the ratio of Christian and non-Christian was off the charts, and most of them either you know, went to that fellowship, and even the ones that didn't were affected by it, were leavened, just the, fa- the presence of all those participating families living in that such a, a, a dense concentration had a leavening effect on the whole section of town. And uh, I, I, I was there for a while, and uh, it was charismatic, but it was ref- but it was Calvinistic, mm-hmm. and uh, they had tongues, and uh, they had long prayer meetings where all they did was pray, and uh, and they loved one another, and they were kind of what was interesting is that in a fairly large university town in Missouri, you know, there were stayed established, you know, Southern Baptist, Presbyterian, United Methodist, Nazarene, Roman Catholic, you know, assemblies that had long been established, had been there a hundred years, and none of them could hold a candle to the kind of crowd that this place would draw. Because people, you know, uh, where there's smoke, there's fire. And people heard about it. You know, this crazy bunch of people that do whatever they do out here and love one another and live in community and share all things in common for better or for worse and the the the, the growth was off the charts and uh, far exceeded anything all of the the quote unquote you know uh, authorized uh, Christian denominational churches in the community could offer as far as uh, energy numbers activity vitality anything they just they just didn't have it going on compared to these guys. Mm. And that's, that was truly organic. And so I think that's the word I use a lot. I like one of my favorite words, organic. Well, when you mean organic, you actually, and I can make a pun here, but it's a spiritual organic because it's the work of the Holy Spirit. And I think what, and again, I've been moving in reform circles now for the last 25, 30 years, so I'm really talking to people who come from that mindset, and I love my brothers who are reformed. I, I am deeply indebted to them because, by God's grace, they gave me all the good theology that I have. But they're not, they're not above being blinded by their own presupposition. And my argument here is that our concept of the local congregation uh, is not biblical. I think a church, if we're going to use that word, is determined by not by its form, but by its function. A church is the place where the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached, where the sacraments are administered, and where exists you know, discipline within the context of self-sacrificial love for the brethren. And if you have those things, then you got a church. And it doesn't matter who laid hands on whom. It doesn't matter, you know, whether or not somebody has been to seminary and or approved seminary. Now, granted, the Word of God, in order to preach the Word of God accurately, that requires education, formal or informal, 
it requires good quality study. I mean, it's, you know, it's Paul says to Timothy, study to show yourself approved, right? A good, internet, a good internet connection. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> and you, you can do that. But uh, most people aren't disciplined enough, and all of us benefit from, you know, sitting in a classroom and having someone, you know, summarize. What took me, for example, it took me 15 years from the time I first became a Christian to the time that I actually fully embraced Reformed theology because I was studying it on my own. And I didn't have anyone to help me through the, you know, find me the shortcuts and, and put things together. Education, a friend of mine says an education is basically a shortcut to experience, right? You're taking advantage of other people's experience. But it's not absolutely necessary. A church is not determined by having a building. You've seen where we meet on Sunday morning. We meet in the other half of a shoe store, you know? I put a sign up when we first moved in and it has an arrow, you know, for souls, you know, S-O-L-E-E's go there. For soul, you know, you know S-O-U-L, go here. But, you know, it's, it's kind of funny, and it's it's nice facility inside, I think, you know, yes, it's, it, it looks like a, it looks like a traditional church inside, but we get a lot of, you know, jokes about the fact that we meet, you know, beside a shoe store. It doesn't matter. Uh, in fact, I've said before, I don't really ever want to own a building, because once you own property, it gives Christians something to fight about, and we've got more important things to do than to fight about who does what with this piece of property, or who controls it, or who owns it. Well, you know, one of the questions I always ask, too, and I've asked you before, I think I've asked Joe Moorcraft, and I want to give a shout-out to my, a friend up the road in Bloomington uh, at uh, Clearnote Pastors College in St. Athanasius, and that's Stephen Baker up there. And, um, again, there are people who will fight you vehemently over a certain form. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I would say even though you may or may not have listened or be very familiar. We've talked about both Stephen C. Perks, Kuiper Foundation, and Bojadar Marinoff. But you're going to find you're tracking right along with these guys. So great minds think alike. Or a fool seldom differ, whichever. <laughs> I think it's the former. But uh, And they're basically, you know, we're getting the same picture that it's, uh, and and I think people fall in love with form, and 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 he said it's it's the character of uh, of of the congregation, not the form of it. Uh, it's not uh, you know um, you can have a work of God going on within an Anglican or within a uh, um, a Presbyterian or within a uh, a, a Baptist f- setting it can still be a work of the Holy Spirit. He's certainly not cons- he's not constrained. He can say by many or by few. You know, the thing is, Bill, is that this, if you have this concept that, that, that the church is defined by its function, not by the form, it has tremendous implications on how the church is governed. Um, I'll tell you a story, and I, I, I don't want to bore your listeners here for too long, but oh, about 25 years ago, when I was pastoring in another city, and I'm not going to mention the city, um, there, weren't, there were only like two three Reformed churches in the entire city, and it was a big city of several million people. So, uh, and uh, there was another church that was quite like, you know, they, they, they were kind of like us in our basic theology. We were Reformed, but more than Reformed, we were post-millennial, we believed in, you know, uh, the efficacy of Old Testament law, its application in modern day law, all that kind of stuff. And I got a call from one of the guys that was very high up in their 
uh, in their church. And he said, you know, can I come and see? I, I, I've got a, a question I need to ask you. Well, that always makes me feel like, you know, like I'm walking through a minefield right there, you know. Why is this guy from another church coming to talk to me? You know, what is he going to do? What, you know, what have I done wrong? You know, you know, there's all sorts of weird things that go through your head. Um, and his pastor was, you know, had a fairly good reputation, and, and I've heard him preach a couple of occasions, and I thought he was a, quite a, a good preacher with good, solid theology, delivered in a very effective manner, good rhetoric, and, you know, that kind of thing. Well, anyway, this, this gentleman came to the church and said, I've got a problem, and I need your help. And I said, well, why can't you talk to your pastor? Because he's supposed to be a good man. He says, my pastor is my problem. And here was the difficulty. Uh, this gentleman had just gotten a job offer, from uh, another company that would take him out of the city. He'd have to move halfway across the country, which he was willing to do, but it was a great, great job offer that would, you know, big raise, big promotion, you know, kind of stuff. And when he had told his elders about it, the elders forbid him to leave. If he took the job and left the church, he would be excommunicated from that particular church for rebellion for breaking his covenant vows. Now that's just not just the worst. I've heard of places where, you know, uh, the elders will come and tell you what color you can paint your house, what make, model, and year of car you should be driving, who your children should be marrying. These are not just rare things. These are, these are actually very good churches in, the, in one sense where, where there's a lot of good stuff being done by the elders, uh, good, you know, taking care of the congregation. There's a, a lot of, uh, you know, good material that's being produced from some of these places. They may have Christian schools attached to them. But they're actually little fascist dictatorships. Do you remember what they said about Mussolini, right? He's a fascist dictator. Dagnabbit, he sure did make the trains run on time. And that seems to be the attitude amongst conservative, really serious Christians. They think that they get to run other people's lives because the form is what's important. So we all have to use the same homeschool curriculum. We all have to do the same thing in family worship. We all have to come out for these five meetings every week, right? We've got to do this. And these, these elders, they want to run people's lives, micromanage them. I think that is abhorrent. And you're, and you're saying this as a committed Presbyterian teaching elder. Exactly. Yes. Because when I look at the scripture, when I look at the role of an elder, my role is not magisterial. God's law has already been given. It's my job as a teacher to teach my people that law. It is my job as, a, as, a, as a, uh, an elder, as a ruler in the church, to help them to apply that law. The New Testament elder is the exact equivalent of the Old Testament judge. The Old Testament judge, remember how Israel was to be governed, is that over every 10 households, they would vote, they would select a judge. And then there was ascending courts after that, over every 10 judges, another one pointed, until Moses, or the head, uh, would make up the Supreme Court. So basically, the role of the judge was not to run people's families, but to help them to apply the law of God. And that's gotten me in more trouble than anything else when I tell elders, your job is not to... I've got people in my church when I first came here. They were paranoid about a pastoral visit. 
they literally said, please, pastor, don't come to my house. Please, I really don't want this. And I said, why? I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm coming to try to encourage you, to love you, you know, because under previous pastors, what had happened is that basically people stuck their nose in their closets and looked under their beds and criticized their children and, you know, whether or not their children had, you know, purple in their hair or what, what kind of clothing they wore, the length of their hair, all these stupid things that are absolutely non-essential. And basically, the families felt as if they were on trial. They were nervous. They were, they were oh, the children would all be lined up. <coughs> you know, and the, you can see the parents are really scared that the elders are going to criticize them for how they're raising their kids. Bill, I got a group of people in my church, some of the finest Christians I've ever known. Good husbands, loving their wives. Not perfect, they're sinners like everyone else. But wives who are supportive of their husbands. You know, okay, some of our families, they have big families. I mean, there are a lot of kids. So it can be a little bit unruly sometimes. But, you know, basically, all these parents are doing what they know they should be doing. But they were scared to death when the elders came because they were afraid of what the elders were going to say about their marriage, their family. Now, right, okay, it is my job. So what did you do, get rid of the elders? Or how, well, how do you, how do you, how do you, how does a new, Mar, how does Marshall Dillon come in and clean out it, the old? It really helps when you come into a church that's just gone through a massive split. And so basically all the bad people had left. So what I, what I inherited was uh, a church that had some really solid people in it, but they were really hurting. So basically all I had to do was just bandage up some wounds because they had already, they had already been badly burned and then those individuals, I assume, had gone on to cause some other church afflictions and problems and difficulties. So, uh, to try to, we're going to round uh, third base, try to... Remember, if those guys had still been there, I would never have been called as a pastor. So. What are the limitations of what the elder can do? Well, it's God's law. God's law tells you exactly what you're supposed to do. And it's the elder's job to teach that particular law. So, it is not his job to enforce that law. For example, I'm going to give you, you know, it's my job to tell you and tell my brothers and iron sharpens iron, so tell everyone, you know what, you got to have a quiet time tomorrow. you got to have secret worship. you got to spend some time with the Lord Jesus. you got to open your Bible. you got to pray. you got to read. you got to think. You know, you got to confess your sins. you got to do it, buddy. It's not my job to call you up tomorrow morning and say, hey, Bill, did you have your quiet time? You know, Bill, I've been praying for you this morning. I hope you had your quiet time. That's not leadership. That's manipulation. Now, you know what? I've done that kind of thing over, over the last 40 years of being a Christian because when, like a new baby Christian or someone who's, you know, you know, said, hey, look, Pastor, my life is messed up. I need some extra help. I, I need some, some discipline. So, you know what? It's my job then to help them if necessary. So, you know, it says in, in First Thessalonians, you know, you rebuke the unruly and you, you encourage the faint-hearted and you strengthen the weak and you do that kind of thing. Uh, but generally speaking, you know, it's my job to tell husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. It's not my job to sit husband and wife down and say, okay, now show me how you're loving your wife as Christ loved the church. So and determine how they're supposed to do it. You know, that there is a great deal of liberty of conscience under the gospel. It's actually written in our confession. Let me ask you a couple of questions. You can give shorter answers. We'll try yeah, to knock out a couple. No, I'm lucky I, getting short answers out of me. But I want to just 
What, what do you think of the idea of private judgment? Basically, I think referring to a person listening to God. The practical outworking of the doctrine of the priesthood of every believer. Your hopes are is that the men and women that you love and that you serve and that you shepherd are trained up and learn how to hear God speaking through his word to them so that they obey it organically in all kinds of situations without having a chart. They just do it. We're not talking about continuing revelation. We're saying that when people say, you know, I heard from the Lord, or I, I sense that, you know, our, God told me, or I'm reading his word, and I basically they're, they're getting direction. They're getting, they're getting the juice out of the fruit. And so, so that men and women under the covenant, under the new covenant, as priests, as a, members of a holy nation, are able to make decisions. They don't have to be corralled like goats. They don't have to be beaten with rods and are told to follow the line painted on the floor by the pastor. Well, let me put it this way. The New Testament elder is called a shepherd. A shepherd, Psalm 23, he leads the people to the green pastures and beside the still waters. He doesn't pick the sheep up and stick his nose in the water or grab a handful of grass and shove it down the sheep's throat. The sheep is assumed to be able to eat and to drink normally because that's what sheep do if they're led to the safe places where that's got yeah, food The shepherd's also not doting over the sheep. He's there in the vicinity. He's got his guard dog right. making a revolution every yep. now and then. But you always kind of get the impression yeah. that the, there's a couple of shepherds and they're kind of having a cigarette up on the hill and they're watching their respective herds and they're close enough that if a coyotes come, they can run down with their rod. Or and if there's a sheep the, that's wandering someplace where it ought not to go, he's but got his staff. They can kind of, you know, nudge him back. But they're not up in the sheep's business. They're right. letting the sheep do what sheep do. So, I mean, I guess the point is, is that he starts where he's talking about private judgments, is the idea that, that men and women can hear from God, and they can receive direction from God. They have the scriptures, they have the Holy Spirit, and that's what is referred to. And that is the work of the elder, is to teach the people of God how to do precisely that. Right now in our Wednesday self, evening meeting. To learn self, how to govern themselves. Yeah, to learn how to be self-governed. By the way, I got severely criticized one time at Presbyterian. I was called a heretic and an apostate and an autonomous because I kept using the phrase self-government. And, you know, and basically the elder didn't even understand that self-government doesn't mean that, that the self governs your will, but rather that yourself is governed by God's law. And the way that you do that is by immersing yourself in Scripture. And that's how you learn to hear the Word of God. And that's why our Wednesday evening study is how to actually study the Scriptures. Not, not, to, not to puff our brains up with theology, not to give us, you know, you know, make everyone into a theologian or a philosopher, but rather to teach people how to take the Word of God and to hear the voice of God directed towards their particular problems, trials, temptations, weaknesses, struggles, etc. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and counsel one another. Colossians 3.16. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds, not forsaking our assembly together, and all the more to see the day is drawing in. Proverbs 27.17. As iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. Where is the preacher? In all of those verses, 
It's not the preacher, it's not the Levite, it's not the judge telling people what to do, but rather it is the Holy Spirit working through the law of God, convicting and, 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 and challenging and strengthening and encouraging. And that's what preachers are supposed to be doing. Ephesians 4, 11 and following, God gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for their work of service. Brian, what would you say? Would you, uh, you're a teaching elder, and that's obviously in the, in the Presbyterian polity. Oftentimes, I oftentimes more often use the term teaching elder mm-hmm. versus ruling elder, uh, more so than I do pre- pastor, because in, in a manner of speaking, all of the elders should be pastoring. Exactly. Uh, but could anyone, could a, could a, a, a head of a household, or could the, a, a small child in your congregation, do they have the, by virtue of their union with the people of God by the, through the covenant, sign of the covenant, or they may be regenerated, young Christian child, and uh, they possess, that means they possess the Holy Spirit. Could one of them correct you? <laughs> yeah, and they certainly have an occasion. Yeah, even, even little children. Uh, and again, Colossians three sixteen. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, as you teach. So you're and not. One you're, so you're not shrouded in a cloud of invincibility or uh, infallibility, like a Supreme Court judge. You're mm-hmm. just a. You, you, in other words, you're you, the elders should be, presumably, if these are spiritual men, they should be hum, more humble and more teachable than anybody else. Yeah, that's the whole book of Proverbs. That. Book of Proverbs talks about a wise man and a fool. And the difference between a wise man and a fool is that the wise man loves correction and the fool hates it. What would you say, and what would your response be to the term if someone were giving a report about Bill Evans and they said, well, that Bill Evans, he's just a Lone Ranger Christian. He's not a part of any fellowship. He's not a member of a, of a, of a local assembly. I'm not asking for a defense of me as much as that, that the, the allegation that someone is just off being a Lone Ranger Christian. He's just out there sharing the gospel and loving, ministering to widows and orphans and trying to save babies and are, you know, to follow up on wayward brothers or this, that, whatever they're doing, but they're not doing it under the auspices and with the blessing and the imprimatur and the nihil upstart of the local for, for, for my recovering Catholic friends. Uh, he's not doing it under the auspices. Now, I, some people say that the parachurch is a bad word. Some people say, well, there's no such thing as a parachurch because if you're doing Christian ministry, presumably you're doing it as a member of the body of Christ. Yeah, and that's what Ephesians 4.11 is all about. So yeah. how can you be doing it outside the church if you're a member of the body of Christ? Right. So that's that confusion between the church as the, as the form, this local congregation with its local rules and regulations and institutional you know, peculiarities, as opposed to the church being the people of God, and as Rush Jimmy put it, in all their work and service. But, but if this guy, let's say he's one week he's going over here to the Calvary Chapel, and the next week because he wants to get his Jesus worship praise fix, and, uh, and then the next week he goes over to the Presbyterian Church because, man, they're doing a series on the sovereignty of God, and he really digs that. And uh, 
some weeks he doesn't go to a church because he goes down to the local jail and holds a service down there, even though he's not ordained. He's not an ordained minister in any recognized pres- denomination. He goes down and, and holds and meets with guys in the local prison. And they say, you know, most of the time he just hangs drywall, paints, does odd jobs. He's really not a member of a local church. You know, we see him at the coffee shop. Every now and then you'll see him down at the abortion clinic out, you know, talking to some couple going in. But he's just a lone wolf Christian. Well, let's do th- two things. First of all, if someone came to me with that, what about you? My first response would be as lovingly and as kindly and as graciously as I could ask him, why are you telling me this? Why are you saying this about Bill? If you have a problem with Bill, why aren't you talking to Bill about this? Oh, are you coming to me because you've already talked to Bill about this and you'd like me to go with you and the two of us will go and talk with Bill? Okay, we'll go. But if you just want to tell me bad things about Bill, I won't listen to him because Scripture calls that gossip and whispering and backbiting. And those are just as serious as murder and adultery and fornication and idolatry. And I'm not going to listen to it. Yeah, I get that. And I was, and the person, yeah. and, the, and I know you were just setting up an illustration. I was just, it's not even me because yeah. I don't, you, yeah. know, you know, but, uh, but, but the idea but, of, but he's a lone wolf. He's a lone ranger. He's not a duly ordained. He's not operating under the umbrella are the auspices of a local congregation, good or bad? Uh, it's not always that easy. Because the next thing I would ask is, why is my brother, if my if someone says, okay, I'm concerned about so-and-so, this is the way he is. And I would say, okay, look, you want me to go talk? And he says, yes, would you come with me and help me to, to, to talk with my brother? So we sit down with the brother. Because my first reaction is that if you can't connect somewhere, it may be because you're afraid of, of commitment. You know, it's kind of like a guy, and I and I don't know if you've known guys like this, but back when I was single, there were a few guys that they were not doing anything immoral, they're not doing anything inappropriate, they're making, not making promises, but there was a long, they had like five or six or seven females that they were kind of not dating, because we didn't date, but, you know... They were stringing them along. Well, they weren't really stringing them along, because they were not making any promises, but they would go out to dinner... They might, with this girl, they might go to a movie with that girl because this girl liked this kind of movie. They might go skating with this girl because this girl liked skating. They enjoyed the girl's company. And again, they didn't do anything inappropriate. They weren't hugging or kissing or... No, I didn't know any guys like that. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I did. I knew knew several guys like this. And the problem is, is that the girls always were, they always thought, well, this guy is interested in me because otherwise, why would he be doing this? His argument was that I just, I just enjoy their fellowship and I'm not ready for marriage yet. And, and, and I, I could... And appreciate that you were in the military. I was in the military. There's a commitment problem. The guy was actually afraid of making commitment. Now that's an issue that a lot of Christians have. They don't want to make a commitment because they've been hurt very, very badly. I know cases, and, and I hear them all the time of people who've basically been told, in effect, we think you'd be happier somewhere else. You know, large homeschooling families. Uh, let me, let me, let me add some, just tweak my narrative a little bit, see if we can squeeze a, a answer. And that would be, let's say, he says, well, you know, I, I I like the praise and worship music over here in the spirit. I've got some friends that go over here, but dang, they've got a husband, wife, pastor team. I just can't submit to that. I can't, that's not biblical. <laughs> or the guy I said, well, hey, he gets pluses for that discernment, you know. Then he says, and you know, I like the Presbyterians in their in their in their 
good theology. I love that reform. I love that A.W. Pink and Sovereignty of God stuff and all that. And Lloyd-Jones, and, and I even am reading some Rushdie, but they don't want to do anything. They just want to come and do their church deal. They don't have any kind of fellowship afterwards. I feel kind of like I'm not in the I'm not in the country club, so I'm not in the I'm kind of, I feel I just don't feel welcome there. I've I've tried okay. to reach out and they think I'm a little bit pushy. Uh, I, I you know I've gone to the this and that and so you know in these four churches over here I mean those are all liberals. I mean they're right. God hating, baby killing. Uh, they don't even. You know they they you know they don't even preach the Bible there you know so in other words the guy basically has been sort of left as a sort of a fish without a pond. Yeah, and you're not going to like my answer. Okay, well, okay, let's... you're not going to like my answer because what I'm going to say that 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 it's kind of like it's kind of like being married because after the romance of a marriage wears off and the romance usually only lasts about six months, right? Two people have to get down to the hard work of learning to live together. And not just to tolerate one another, but to actually build the relationship. Now, hopefully you've gotten past, you know, you, know, you, you have a commonality of interest. You have the same, you know, orientation. You're both committed to Christ. You know, you've got the solid foundation. But even then, often there are differences of opinion. There are things about your spouse that you may not like. There are things that you may not even know about your spouse until you've been married to them for a couple of years. Things that, you know, they didn't necessarily hide them from you, but you were looking at them through certain kinds eyes and you didn't see things that were there and once you realize that you go wow how do we make this work now the world doesn't the world divorces and they go and they try something you've got a marriage covenant do you have a congregational covenant no uh, well, there is a. You take certain vows when you become a member of a Presbyterian church. The vows are pretty broad, though. It basically to work for the peace and purity of the church, and we, you know, be in lawful submission to the elders. And so, as long as the elders are teaching the truth, you're allowed to be in submission to them. But what I'm talking about here is that you know, a good marriage is more than just sticking it out because God says don't get divorced, but rather it's learning how to work together to get past those things. Um, and again, when I say this, I'm not trying to judge anyone, because you know what? I'm, you know, before you judge people, you need to walk a mile in their shoes, because then you're a mile away and you've got their shoes. And, and so I'm, I, I really don't want to judge other people, because it's hard out there sometimes. My own kids right now are having a very difficult time. They're grown up, they're Christians, they love the Lord, they're walking faithfully, but it's very hard to find a church that just where the preaching doesn't just drive them in, insane, you know, because it's, it's downright heresy. Or the church is like a little fascist slash mafia, you know, stronghold kind of thing. So I understand this, this particular difficulty. And I, I actually give a person kudos, you know, uh, congratulations for actually, you know, working and continuing to fellowship with people like that. But I'm going to say that there's probably a church that needs that person. There's probably a church that needs to have someone come along that's got his drive and his vision and his compassion and they're weak and they're struggling and they just need someone to come in there and, and help them because the problem that you said about, you know, in our hypothetical situation and Rushdie he was so wise he refused to answer hypothetical questions the problem is, is that the guy says well I'm getting this from this church and I'm getting that from that church and I really like this over here he's basically taking a uh, Smorgasbord? Yeah. Where 
what I'm lacking is, or what I'm not hearing him say is, wait a minute, where can I serve God's people the most effective manner? Now, I may have this vision for helping these prisoners down here. I may have a vision for standing with my brothers on the abortion line out here. I may have my vision for doing this over here. And those are all legitimate, worth it, worthwhile. Praise God for him. He's a blessed. But you know what? There's probably a congregation that really needs the gifts that God's given him. And so I think uh, in the words of my long-time buddy Jack Campbell, it's not about you. Yeah. It's not about what your... I, I get what you're saying. It's not what your congregation can do for you. It's what you can do for your congregation. And sometimes you have to serve them even if it kills you to do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, again, I'm not going gonna to get in so much trouble. It's kind of like after you've been married, and I, and I can say this because it's not true in my case. It's, it's the opposite. It, well, okay, after you've been married for 20 years and your wife has had four children, she may not have the same shape that she had when she was 20 years old, but you still love your wife as Christ loved the church. You still cherish her. You still delight in her. You know? Elaine still yeah. looks like an 18 year old. Yeah, I know. When I, but so I said, it applies to me. She got the fat one. She, you know. <laughs> but the point is, is that, okay, there are things that, 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 and I've realized this about people. And again, I'm old and I'm going to die sometime soon. But you know what? People are weird and funny and they have personality quirks. And the things that used to drive me insane 20 or 30 years ago, I now realize that's just how this person is. You know, I'm going to love you not in spite of that flaw or imperfection, but rather because that helps to define you. That, that, that way that you think about this, that, that, that habit you have of reacting to this particular thing, uh, the fact that you get all you know, winky about you know, Walt Disney movies, right? You know, and you think they're of the devil. Rather than judging you or, or critiquing you or, or whatever, just love the person. And I think that applies to a church. You can look at a church, a congregation, and go, yeah, there's weaknesses, there's frailties, there's, there's, there's imperfections, the preaching is not always the best. I can help the guy do that. The, the worship is kind of dull. Well, maybe I can, I can help him on that. You know, uh, They're not doing anything in the community. Well, let me grab a couple of people and take them with me down to the abortion clinic or you know, scare somebody to death by taking them down to the jail to do a worship service. In other words, that brother can do all those great things that he's doing. And he can multiply his ministry by investing a little bit of time in that local congregation. And it won't be perfect. It won't be a superstar. It won't be a you know, glamorous you know, you know, bikini model, right? Mm-hmm. It may be slightly dowdy and maybe droopy a little bit and mm-hmm. you know, maybe a ward or two here and there. But that little sweetie needs to be loved just like every other woman needs to be loved. That church needs to be loved. And I think, now I'm not, again, I'm not going to tell someone else what they're supposed to do, right? That's between them and their conscience. But I can encourage them to use their gifts to, to help somebody else. But are they in sin? Nah, they're not in sin. Well, you know, I think in the First Corinthians 13, love never fails. Yeah. And you have to believe that verse on love by faith. <laughs> you know, uh, your faith uh, I don't know if it says faith never fails but certainly it says love never fails but you know I think you know so that's I think that's a good I was going to ask you to take, take us out with a good application 
admonition that was application-oriented, kingdom-building-oriented. So something we could say, well, yeah, it was ta- it got tactical right there, and then we got a couple of we got a couple of good solid. Uh, tools we could put in our belt or uh, a couple of rounds I could load in a magazine kingdom kingdom rounds would you say uh, persevere in love that's well that's certainly not a, not not ever a bad application um, yeah and I, I don't want to, to, to beat the analogy to a to a you know like a dead horse here but I'm kind of thinking about a, a single guy right that he meets various women throughout his life, and he goes, yeah, she's cute, but she's not very deep. Or this girl is, like, really deep, but, yeah, you know, she's not really very attractive, right? Or he always finds something wrong with this woman or that woman. He never finds the perfect matchup. And then one day he wakes up, and he's 45 or he's 50 years old, and the pool of available women is suddenly pretty much dried up. And he's not in sin. I'm not going to say he's in sin because, you know, he had certain standards. He wasn't willing to settle, whatever. Thank God for settling. Otherwise, I would never have gotten my wife. Uh, She settled for me. Uh, But the reality is, is that it's lonely, right? And and that kind of is its own punishment kind of thing. The the idea is what Jesus himself said. Even the Son of Man did not come to serve uh, to, uh, to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That is not just a piece of, you know, a cliche. That ought to be our orientation no matter what we are. And if you're in a church and it's not very good, don't, uh, I, I want to use a bad word here, don't complain about it. Do something about be it. Be part of the solution, yeah, not part of the problem. you know, if you, the, the church isn't doing something that they should be doing, don't go to the elders and demand they start a program Go do it. Well, I remember one time I was in a face with a situation. I was just fit to be tied and exasperated. And I said, Father, in Jesus' name, do something. And sort of, you know, in that still small voice of the Spirit said back to me, in Jesus' name, you do something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, you, you may not know this because you haven't le- listened to all the War Room podcasts, which is your assignment for next week. But I have listened to all the War Room podcasts since I've been on most of them. And I can tell you that, in effect, what you've done is echoed some other dear elder men, brothers in, in, in the faith, uh, who have, who've, who've tracked along. You've said very, very many of the same uh Important things you've, I think you've clarified, you've verified, uh, you've served as a witness. Um, but I think what you said at the end there, and this is, and you know, we run across a lot of Reconstructionist families who are uh, without a church home at this time. They're not part, they are not covenanted together with a local assembly. Mm-hmm. And they're sort of doing the home church thing. And uh, the dad is basically reading scripture and trying to teach some lessons and they sing some hymns and then they they try to rest because they have a hard week and uh, I like what Bojadar says you know uh, the the um, the uh, on the two sides of the scale as it pertains to the Sabbath it's not work worship it's work rest mm-hmm. properly understood all work should be worship. I, I, I was I, I uh, 
blog today on Facebook, I said, one of my pet peeves is that somehow you got to gather together with other Christians that, that congregational worship is somehow more important to God or more beloved or more, you know, uh, more valuable. Yeah, it is, though, because we are called to worship the Lord our God together as a people, not just as individuals. And not just as families. Okay. But, but, I, but I, guess, so, I guess where I come from that, I, I, I would say, but, but you don't worship God all the, you know, in your job? You don't worship Him every day? Yeah, but you're, you're committing a fallacy of equivocation. You're using the word worship in two different ways. Worship is, in Greek, we translate the word as a worship. Worship is a religious duty that we owe God. It is, it is something that He commands us to do. We are to sing praises to His name. We are to pray. We are to read the Scriptures. We are to have the Scriptures preached. And we have to have the right administration of the sacraments, right? And I'm going to again. I'm not. I'm not. I'm, 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 not, I'm not trying to get yeah, specific I know, answers. I'm I know. Just, this is but, your... but I'm going to say this because I've run into lots of families like this over the years. Lord bless them. And I have every sympathy for them. As I said, my kids are struggling with the same issue right now. My counsel to them is to don't go it alone. If you think you're the only person in your community who feels the same way about church, the church, you might, it might be a, a real, real drought in your area in terms of you know what you would, what you would be accepted acceptable in the church. There's lots of other families. Find them. Meet together. On no, Sunday I tell people. Morning. I tell people look online for homeschoolers because homeschoolers right. are very frequently uh, don't feel welcome at certain churches because of the, the sure. size of their family. Oftentimes they are already anti-statist and uh, understanding their Christian responsibility to educate their own children. And so that means that they're already uh, probably got more going for them than the average garden variety American yeah. church in. But, and, and so those are places, those are, like, right. like we used to go to the base chapel to, yeah, to find exactly. pe- to people who were looking for God uh, you know, you need to go in the homeschool co-ops and. I know this whip. is going to sound terrible, but for about ten years before I was an ordained minister, I had to go to church when I was in college and seminary. And basically, a lot of these churches were like, "These things are dead." And I used to complain all the time, "Lord." Where's the life? I mean, where, where's the kind of fellowship that I knew when I first became a Christian? These people are horrible. You know, it's like Brian, so are you. And stop complaining about other people and what's lacking and start doing something about it. Go to a church. It may not be perfect. As long as it's not heretical, meet some people there. Don't wait to be invited. Invite them to your home, right? The home is an underutilized right. Right. tool. You, no you talked about these wonderful lectures that you've got on here. Go to Sermon Audio. You, there's so many really great, brilliant, incredible, articulate preachers on any subject matter that you want. Find someone. But you see, you're serving people. Using your home as a way of reaching out. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes you alive. Now, guys like you have a hard time because you're on the road all the time and, you know, you don't, you know, you're not in one location. From You're literally in California on Monday and in New York on Wednesday or Thursday. Well, maybe I don't know how long it takes to drive across the country, but you're a professional driver, so I'm assuming that you make, manage to make miles. The point is, is that your situation is unique. You get to be almost like a traveling apostle. You get to visit brothers all over the country. And I do get to drop in, and, we, and I, I always enjoy when I can come to Covenant. Yeah, um, and, and, and you're always a blessing. 
You always come with a blessing, sharing stories and experiences, challenges, asking questions, offering, offering some, some new insights about various things. That's a real blessing. And I bet that every minister and fellowship that you stop in on your way across the country is really happy when you do. They well, I'm the gain. I'm the infinite gainer. But yeah, yeah, I like to think that I'm welcome. And when, and uh, but for the that's why I don't Christian, stay long, so I don't wear yeah, out yeah, my that, welcome. That's even better. Yeah. Uh, but the average Christian, okay, if they get their head out of this, I need to be served. I need to have a, a sermon that's going to really bless my soul, and I need a program for my children mm-hmm. that's going to let me, you know, or I, I need, you know, this kind of activity. If instead they think I'm here to serve God's people. And, uh, hey, I'm going to go. I'll help this little church here. And, I'm, you know, it's got a couple of families I think maybe we could connect with. We'll invite them over for a meal. We'll fellowship with them. Maybe we can get them together in the middle of the week. The kids can play and do something together. And, you know, we can listen to some lectures. So, you know, Bonson and Rush Dooney. I mean, uh, all the, you know, the greatest minds of the 20th century are all now on sermon audio or other places. There's tons Reconstructionist of radio. And Reconstructionist radio. You're sorry, right. And, and so for those, for those people who have homes, and most people do of some sort, whether it's an apartment or a, or, or, or a spacious home, uh, that home is an outpost. It is probably one of the most underutilized, undervalued, underappreciated tools of dominion in reaching your neighborhood. And it's the way the early church grew. It wasn't by the apostles doing all the evangelism. Remember, the apostles... So you, like, so you, you aren't... So let me just clarify for myself and for my listeners, you're not, you weren't being down on home congregations. You were saying, don't go it alone. Don't be your family alone. Yes. Sequestered exactly. off. Exactly. In other words, I, I've oftentimes said, you know, the definition of, an, of, of a congregation is three large homeschooling families in a living room. Yeah. <laughs> you know, at that point, yeah. I, obviously for a synagogue, you had 10 right. families or 10 males, but, but that is the, the and there's, and and we'll hear more about that. We keep beating that, and we talk about the the synagogue model versus the temple model. Mm-hmm. And I know you've heard about that. You read all that stuff. You're uh, uh, and uh, and so when I think of the synagogue model, and I think what we're going to be talking about this summer is that the synagogue for the Jewish people today certainly go to any like St. Louis or if there's a synagogue, you know, uh, there's a, a community center. And that is sort of the heart of the Jewish community, all their functions and their their bar mitzvahs and so on and so forth. And, yeah. and, and, that, and that is the whole idea is... Uh, how much of cross-pollination has taken place where Judaism has been influenced by Christianity, where Christianity was influenced by Hebrew religion. And Judaism, of course, is different than Hebrew religion because Judaism is the religion of the Pharisees. After the temple was destroyed where Hebrew religion was basically oriented around the three festivals of the, the temple, annual festivals of the temple, plus the local synagogue, which was kind of like, as you said, the social and cultural heart. And that influenced the development of the church, and then the church influenced the development of the synagogue. I mean, it, it's a very... Well, I think the, the, where it all ends yeah. up is that is that uh, church should look more like a culture than a weekly event. Exactly. Brian? I appreciate you uh, hosting me in your home. I know we need to get back to the truck. Elaine's driving, and I don't want to keep her up too late. You've, you've got your complimentary War Room t-shirt yeah, now. thank you for that, man. And we had a good dinner with you and your lovely bride. And we thank you for joining us here on The War Room. Thank you for joining us in The War Room. Please enjoy The Nation's Rage, Psalm 2. 
by my soul among lions. 